Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Welcome to our very first official episode of the Fraudology Podcast. If you listened to the previous one, that was more of an introduction to get to know me a little bit and understand what to expect for the podcast. Funny little anecdote if you're curious about podcasting. When I started the last podcast, you only needed one episode to launch in iTunes. Now they require two. So uh, if you're seeing new podcasts come out and they have two episodes right away, that's why. But I also think it's a great opportunity to literally just dive in because, oh my gosh, you guys, there's been so much happening in the world of fraud in the last six weeks that I, yeah, my head is spinning. (laughs) I bet yours is too. (laughs) I had every intention of starting this several weeks ago, but it was a combination of my business picking up after being very slow due to COVID. There were you know, several, as I'm sure everyone has experienced, there were several projects that were reprioritized for clients. So had to push them down the line or just they had to say, hey, we can't do this anymore pretty suddenly. So that was a shock to the system and uh, had some hard life stuff happen with a very close family member passing away and then another one getting a cancer diagnosis shortly after. So, you know, it's been tough, but I think it's been tough for everyone. So I certainly don't want to play the pity card. I am resilient. I think a lot of us are and we need to be. And I think that that's also one of the best qualities someone can have. And so, you know, on with life, but I'm not going to lie. I've really, I have struggled with some mental health issues. I've had, I do have anxiety and depression and it creeped up more during this time. And it made it hard to do the things I wanted to do. And and one of them being this podcast. Additionally, I I deal with imposter syndrome probably just as much as everyone else. And so I was having some serious fear doing this by myself. I'm used to having a sidekick or, you know, a co-host. I was probably more the sidekick if we're being honest, but, you know, a co-host to riff off of and and bounce stuff off of. And just kind of trying to think like... Like, what do I have to offer by myself? Or like, how can I make this fun and interesting? And I think I had those, um, as Brene Brown calls them, the gremlins talking about, you know, how I couldn't do it the same. So we'll see. I mean, maybe, maybe those gremlins are right, but I'm not going to know unless I try. So this is me trying. I really appreciate everyone who has sent the sweetest and kindest notes, either saying that they're sad that the broadcast is over or that they're excited for fraudology. 
I really, that, that honestly meant a lot and was good validation that I made the right decision because quite honestly, for the first few weeks after I knew that the other podcast was going to be, um, over, I thought that was it for me for podcasting. But what I found is that I genuinely love sharing information. And I know that because of the relationships I have and the trust I've built up, I get to know a lot. And I think that there's a lot of value in sharing that with you. I mean, I think everyone who knows me knows that I won't say X company said this or X company has seen this, but uh, I think it's helpful because there's a lot of newer fraud trends that will start in one vertical and then move through the rest. For instance, account takeover first started on online gaming and dating and gambling um, on the e-commerce side. I know it started on banking prior to that. Unfortunately, my catalog of information is primarily reserved for e-commerce. Fortunately, unfortunately, it depends on who you ask, I suppose. And so like account takeover was just hitting those few sectors and now it hits any online company with an account, a small retailer hits anyone. It's crazy what kind of accounts are uh, for sale on dark web forums or clear net private communities or in private chats, etc. So really that's like one example, but that's a reason why I think everyone likes to hear because you may not be dealing with something in your company this year, but you will be dealing with it next year. And I know I've heard anecdotes from a lot of companies that have said that from previous episodes I did on the Frogcast where, hey, I didn't, I was just listening to listen. And then like the next year we just got hit hard with it. So I went back and listened to it again. And that makes me happy and makes uh, this time spent talking into a microphone to myself very much worth it. So that's a little bit of what's going on in my world. Additionally, in addition to working with e-commerce companies, as well as just a couple select providers on a few specific uh, projects, I have been working with one of the states hit hard by unemployment fraud in the U.S. And that has been very interesting. I, I wouldn't say that it's been sophisticated fraud, but that's because they legitimately didn't know that they needed to worry about identity fraud. And I actually have compassion for that. They definitely were hit hard and fast and and unprepared. And there were a lot of factors involved. And now I'm talking about all the states, not just the state I'm working with, because I have spoken with with several as well and, and may work with a few others in the future. But that's been really fascinating to me. In some ways, it's like, oh, this is stuff we did 10, 15 years ago. In other ways, though, it's like, oh, wow, this is really different and new. And I think what has really struck me is primarily, like, primarily at the end of the day, I'm helping large businesses save a lot of money. But when I'm working with e-commerce companies on, you know, high level chargeback reduction or chargeback response strategies or fraud prevention or, you know, risk assessments, et cetera, I'm helping them ultimately save millions of dollars. On the flip side, from a government fraud perspective, that money wasn't the states to begin with, right? It was their citizens money. And so I, and the money was meant to help people who genuinely need it. So there's a additional level of seriousness as well as, you know, fulfillment. I think it, it gives me more of a sense of fulfillment than maybe some of my previous projects with, you know, high luxury brands or other things did just because you really can see the impact pretty quickly. But 
it's been, you know, really interesting also just to work with a different type of company than a technology company. I, I kind of forget sometimes that not every company or structure or, you know, entity is, moves at the same speed or has the same resources or, or same knowledge or same systems as, you know, an e-commerce company that has to move fast and has to break things sometimes. So I was talking with my hands and I just hit the microphone. So sorry if that made it weird. <laughs> it is a Sunday afternoon and I'm just like, yeah, so this could be interesting. <laughs> so one segment I wanted to bring to fraudology is the what the fraud segment. That was something that I named. Clearly we all uh, know what most people mean when they say WTF. When we got t-shirts made for the other podcast that said, what the fraud in the front, I gave one to my mom kind of to be silly. And, and my mom is very religious and pretty sheltered. There's a lot of things she doesn't know. And uh, a couple weeks later, I was actually in Israel getting my Legend of Fraud Award, actually. And my daughter and uh, her cousin, who is also a teenager, were kind of giggling with each other. And they said, you know, WTF. And my mom said, you know, they're, or they were talking to each other. I don't know if they're giggling yet. And my mom overheard WTF and my mom said, why are you saying what the fraud was? Was there a fraud issue? Did, did my account get hacked again? <laughs> oh, geez. Like total facepalm. So my mom genuinely thought that WTF meant what the fraud. So we're going to go with that. But what this segment is, is a current story in the news, fairly current. So sometimes it's going to be this week. Sometimes it's going to be from a few weeks ago, story in the news about fraud. And then we'll dive into a, another topic for the second part of the show. All that said, I think we've all heard of the Ritz, right? I think those of us in the U.S. are familiar with the chain Ritz-Carlton. Actually, when my family went to Hawaii a few years ago on the island of Maui, we were celebrating my husband's birthday and unfortunately he got food poisoning really bad from the luau. So we missed two days of vacation. So we decided to extend our flight. Well, our condo was booked after that. So we needed to find something else. And I went on a, a hotel website to look for something just to see if anything was available. And there was a room at the Ritz Carlton in Maui during a PGA tournament for $199. I kid you not. That room is normally like $800 to $1,200. I'm guessing there was a cancellation and they know that there's not a lot of same day bookings in Hawaii because that's a destination where most people always have bookings. So the algorithm system must made it really low. So I can say that for once in my life, I did stay at a Ritz Carlton and my daughter was 10 or 11 at the time. And I said, don't get used to this. <laughs> uh, it was pretty crazy. But I have since learned that the Ritz in London is a separate entity. So it's not a Ritz Carlton, but it is extremely fancy and known for their tea. And I don't know if anyone else has heard this story. I've actually um, read it once on BBC and then heard it on a um, security podcast that I listened to called Smashing Security. And uh, they're from the other side of the pond, as they say, but lots of really good information on there. And there's in a Venn diagram, there's so much with cybersecurity and online fraud that intersect or go hand in hand. And so I try to be informed in both. So there were people, the Ritz has started to allow people to book 
uh, tea, afternoon tea in socially distanced fashion. But you have to book up pretty far in advance, especially since there's less tables available and you know, they're trying to be very conscious of socially distance and being safe in this time during COVID. So people were booking weeks in advance somehow. And this is the piece that is still a mystery. They don't know if it's because of a data breach or an inside threat, or, you know, there could be a few different things that could be, you know, some kind of a malware that's pulling that information or that's copying it. But scammers are getting the reservation list of the Ritz. And so about a day before someone was scheduled to go for tea, they would get a phone call from the Ritz. It would say the Ritz on their caller ID. The person would identify themselves as calling from the Ritz uh, about their reservation tomorrow. So I think that that makes people feel like, oh, of course you're there because who else would know that I have a reservation tomorrow for tea? And they would say, we need to confirm your credit card details to um, hold the reservation just in case you don't show up or we're going to have to charge you, blah, blah, blah. That kind of makes sense, right? In the time of COVID, I know I've read of local restaurants that are really struggling because people will book a reservation and then not show up and they only have a set number of tables. So, you know, it it can sound right. I mean, I don't know if I'd fall for this or not. I, I would like to think I wouldn't, but it sure seems, you know, it would sound kind of legitimate. So they would do that. And then they would take the card number and they would go try to spend thousands of pounds on at the retailer Argos, which is a catalog retailer. I think I kind of looked it up. It's similar to Tesco in the UK. They said that the main competitors over here are Amazon. I think it kind of looks similar to like a Best Buy with mixed with a Target. Like there's just a lot of there's, you know, high value electronics, but there's also clothing and different items and all of that. So it's kind of, you know, one-stop shopping. I guess it was the original catalog store in Great Britain for a long time, but now they're online. And so they would go, you know, make purchases at Argos. When a customer, so for UK purchases, a lot of people know that it is protected by 3D Secure, or uh, sometimes the banks will require a one-time password or an OTP, depending on if it's 3D Secure with the bank, that who knows, but a lot of the customers were getting, a lot of the cardholders were getting a one-time password request from Argos. And so then the uh, scammers would call when they got the message trying to place the order that, you know, a password has been sent to your phone. They would call back to the the person this time as their bank, spoof the phone number, identify themselves as the, as the bank, probably a different person in the organization, but who knows? Like the same person with the same voice, as long as it's not super recognizable, could call me twice in a few days. And I probably wouldn't remember if they said they were from somewhere else. So they would call from the bank and say, we think that your card has been compromised just to confirm that you have the card in your possession. Can you tell me what the three digit code or the, what the number, it's not always three digits. Sometimes it's six, sometimes it's whatever what that code is so that we can shut down your card. Well, of course that actually just makes the transaction go through. So I, I'm not sure on liability on that. It, it's probably uh, at the bank because the security says, you know, that they said, okay, but I'm not hundred percent sure because it really depends on a lot of factors on how that transaction was run. So I don't know who's left holding the bill, but I think this is one of those scams that they, they know their stuff, right? They somehow have this information about the Ritz, which I think is critical, but does that mean that they can't get it or that other scammers aren't going to read about this and 
try to replicate it in other ways. What if somebody posts on social media that they're really excited to go do something because a lot of us have spent several months in our homes, primarily in our homes. And then a scammer can call and say, oh, I'm calling about your you know, reservation or your trip or whatever it is, the, you know, the admission that you bought, whatever it is. So it's, you know, something to be aware of and spoofing phone numbers are definitely fairly easy to do. I know of at least one provider that has a really good product that helps card call centers know if their numbers are spoofed, but um, with scammers and on consumers, it can be really challenging. So, I mean, definitely the advice to consumers for something like this is always to when somebody asks for your credit card number or any personal identifiable information, even if they just ask you to validate it or confirm it, it's important to call them back. And if they are legitimate, they're going to completely understand why and they're going to know that you are being responsible. If they are a scammer, they're going to get really mad. And that's one way to know if they're trying to scam you or not. (laughs) So that is the story of the Ritz. I would love to hear if you've had something similar or if you have heard of something similar. If you would have asked me a year ago how fraud would be impacted or how online fraud would be impacted in a pandemic, I would have made a couple things up. I probably (laughs) wouldn't have had any idea, but now I can tell you pretty well. Uh, (laughs) I thought that this would be a great topic for the first episode, you know, about fraud in a pandemic. I think a lot of you guys especially deserve badges of honor or you already have war wounds or battle scars from the last six months. I am fully aware that there are a lot of you that are uncertain if you will have a job for much longer or have already been laid off. Side note, I did create a group on LinkedIn for job postings in fraud chargebacks and payments as well. And we have, I mean, almost 700 members, I believe. And so it's, you know, if if you have a position to advertise as well, I hope you will join it or send me the link if you don't want to be bombarded with a letter or emails and I can forward it for you. But it's called Online Fraud Payment and Chargeback Job Opportunities, just in case you're looking. Back in 2012, I was the program manager for the largest trade association for online payments and fraud. One of my many duties was to help create sessions for conferences, figuring out what do people want to learn? What should we title it? Who should speak at that session? And that year, one of the many buzzwords was machine learning. A lot of people were starting to hear about it and As you know, if you're in fraud, you always kind of keep an eye out for what's new. You know, what do I need to know? What new technology is out there? So a lot of people were curious how it was different from, you know, core fraud systems that had rules engines. You know, a lot of them were linear rules engines. I didn't really know the answer, but I had heard about a company who had recently created machine learning for fraud fighting, and that was called Sift Science at the time. So I called up the CEO, Jason Tan, and asked if he would be willing to do an educational session for two hours to really talk about what is machine learning, how does it work, how can it be applied to fraud prevention, and how does it, how is it better for fraud prevention than the other solutions out there? 
I must have told him 300 times it could not be a sales pitch. And that never bothered him. He was like, yeah, that's fine. I don't care about selling my product. I care about educating people. So actually, one time he flew up from San Francisco to Seattle for the day so that we could go over the agenda of the session, kind of to make sure that the topics that he was covering were going to answer all the questions I was getting from merchants about this topic. And he showed me his outline. He was really excited to do this. And I just looked at it and I didn't even know what half of the words meant. And I said, Jason, I'm going to need you to dumb this down like a lot. Because if I don't know it, I'm guessing that most other fraud operations people aren't. We're not technical and we're not engineers. We're, you know, we're on the operations side of fraud prevention. And so we worked together to create a really stellar outline of, you know, all the things that people wanted to learn. And he presented it the morning after all the parties in Vegas and, you know, people are out all night and I jokingly used to refer to that time slot the next morning as the hangover slot, probably because that was the time slot that I was put in the first time that I spoke (laughs) at that conference in 2010. So, you know, it's fitting. I'll call other people's sessions that too. And it was a full room. I think it held 200 and like people were standing up in the back. So I tell you that story to introduce you or reintroduce you to the very first sponsor of the Fraudology podcast, SIFT. I really appreciate the fact that SIFT is all about education. They have a great product and of course they want everyone to know about it. But if you read their blog articles or their white papers or listen to their own podcast, they really care about just sharing information. It's not laced with sales pitches, just like Jason's wasn't then. Not a single person on those session evaluation forms said he had a sales pitch. If anything, they were surprised because a lot of times vendors who present at conferences just can't help themselves. They can't help but slide in who they work for, why their product is better. He didn't do that. And they really don't when they talk at conferences. You know, full disclosure, some of my favorite people work at SIFT, but that doesn't mean that they're the only provider that I recommend to clients or other merchants, but I do think that they are worthy of checking out because they do fit a lot of the requirements that people need and really fit all kinds of business models, whether you're a marketplace or a retailer or an online gaming company, it doesn't matter. Their system adapts to your business and they allow you to create rules about that and all those things. I am not a product salesperson, but I do want to introduce you or reintroduce you to them and have you check them out. Go to their new webpage that they just created for this podcast, www.sift.com slash fraudology and check them out. For those that are, you know, have been in this fight for some level of time during COVID, it really has impacted different verticals in different ways. I was asked to do a webinar for CMP back in, I think, April. And because, you know, the CMP Expo was supposed to be at the end of May, I was, you know, very excited. It was going to be my sixth one that I've uh, helped out on the content. I'm not a full-time staff member anymore, but still I 
still uh, consult on the content and help with speakers. And it's just something fun that I love to see come to fruition after months and months of planning. So we had already planned the agenda and had a lot of speakers lined up and then had to cancel it. So we did a, a virtual expo or it's not an expo anymore, a CMP summit. And I was asked to do a webinar on how fraud is impact or how COVID is impacting online fraud. I don't even want to listen to it because I'm afraid that it was so outdated from April, right? Like, it's just crazy how much like time seems like a crazy, like a construct right now, but also so much happens so quickly and so fast. Um, and I'm not even talking about politics just in general. And so definitely there's been a lot of impacts. This could be a five hour episode in itself. So I'm just going to mostly talk about e-commerce and how that there's so many scams that are impacting consumers and banks and, and so many others, you know, as a result of COVID, but I'm just mostly going to focus on the e-commerce side as well as I try really hard to be internationally focused because I know that we have, or that, you know, I will have a lot of listeners overseas and, you know, I've, I have clients overseas as, as well as, you know, just people in my network who I think highly of. I'm, I try really hard not to have things be so U.S. centric, but this is really what I know. And I think that, I think that because situations and governments are responding to this pandemic differently, that different countries have different issues. And I don't fully know the issues in regions like the UK, EU, Australia, the Middle East, etc. So please forgive me, but chances are you have a US website and entity. So hopefully this will all be helpful. I think that the best way to do this is by vertical. Uh, I mentioned the travel and ticketing group that I helped to, well, I'm facilitating and on the intro episode. And so I guess I can start there. The first couple of weeks of, I would actually say like the first week of, uh, the COVID shutdown in the U S which I know was a little later than several company or countries, but that was like the second week of March, I believe of 2020. I started getting lots of emails, LinkedIn messages, a couple text messages from very large event ticketing, as well as travel companies and theme parks and just all of those people who rely on tourism. And they were probably the first ones hit the hardest, not of fraud, but of losses. And that did in turn cause chargebacks, which not necessarily fraud chargebacks, a lot of them were service chargebacks, but my background came in really handy because I was able to help them know exactly how to respond to chargebacks during this time. Visa and MasterCard had come up with new regulations for those specific uh, merchant category codes or MCC codes for travel, for events, for you know anything in the tourism area where they wouldn't be penalized for having an over 1% chargeback ratio, thank goodness, because their sales took a nosedive and their chargebacks went skyrocketed. A lot of them needed to figure out policies to try to avoid chargebacks. Others needed to have policies that didn't provide cash refunds or uh, credit card refunds. They needed to retain as much uh, working capital as possible. So we uh, all worked together to create or to at least advise them on policies that would help them 
be able to provide those credits while also being able to win a chargeback if it was filed because the banks can't tell if you've issued a store credit or not. So that was all kinds of fun and craziness. Also, a lot of um, marketplaces in the sharing economy reached out around the same time as well, whether it was forms of home exchange or car sharing or ride sharing, etc. And I know they were hit quite hard as well. And these are companies that I think if you would have asked any of us a year or two years ago, we would have thought they were too big to fail and that they would never have a problem. But never say never, because we obviously weren't thinking about the likelihood of a global pandemic. And I just, it was also super emotional for me because I'm so empathetic. And I just, I I knew that this was a, a human thing. But the fraud component of that is I've been concerned that, and, and I don't, we haven't seen this yet, but this is kind of my forecasting and I hope I'm wrong that because these companies, a lot of them have provided store credit or, you know, their own brand bucks or whatever they call it. Um, one, I know at least one of the companies offered like 20% more in a refund if you chose store credit, which I thought was really smart. I'm very big and very, I think I'm very good at figuring out cause and effect, right? Like if we if you do this policy or if you make this tweak or this change, then this is what's going to happen and it's going to be a good outcome. Or if you do this or that, it's going to have a bad outcome like down the line. So we really worked through that. But now that there are hundreds or thousands, probably thousands of sometimes even tens of thousands in some companies cases of accounts that now have uh, dollar values in them, my concern is that at some point fraudsters are going to start draining those accounts through account takeover. That is something that, you know, then they could either compile them all onto one account and to try to sell them in a big stash or probably more than likely uh, sell off vouchers for that amount or sell or transfer it to another account and then sell that account or change the password. Who knows? So if you are one of those companies who has done that, I would highly recommend you know, having some customer communications around passwords. You can do a forced password reset. You can add multi-factor authentication. You can, you know, if you have account monitoring in place through a, a machine learning company that checks behavior at the login, that would be super helpful, whether it's device or the way that they are typing in the password or whatever it is. So that is one vertical that was hit hard. I would say another vertical that was hit hard, but also in a unique way was retail. It really obviously varied, especially in the first few months of what you uh, sold, right? Because if you sold a bunch of toilet paper, if you're a retailer that sold toilet paper or hand sanitizer or, you know, bleach wipes or anything like that, your sales would go through the roof. But others just had a, a steep dive. Um, I know some, I mean, speaking of machine learning, I know some companies more than others had some challenges in uh, keeping up with them, especially when they uh, don't have custom models for their each client because the consumer behavior changed so much and it was hard to get a view on the outliers when the fraudsters were kind of acting like regular consumers and the regular consumers were looking like fraud. One provider actually told me a, a funny anecdote and they're one that you know wasn't as affected by this at all, but they have a a company that sells alcohol. They're not that's not the only thing, but they have, you know, alcohol that you can sell on, or buy online. 
And prior to the pandemic, anyone that ordered more than six bottles of vodka at a time, that was like a huge red flag. That was like, you know, eight times out of 10, you're probably fraud. Well, post pandemic, six bottles of vodka is like, you know, I don't know, for some people, it's probably a weekly consumption amount. (laughs) And I'm not condoning alcoholism by any means at all. But I know that there have been a lot of creative ways of coping lately. So you know, that's an example of needing to tweak the model very quickly or having those the models that refresh and auto refresh and and are constantly learning, uh, which there are some companies that do that really well these days. So that's something that that I thought kind of interesting. But also retailers were having a hard time figuring, especially ones with physical locations, figuring, okay, well, what do we do if and when our stores open up? How do we create curbside pickup? Or how do we, you know, especially when you didn't have the technology or infrastructure to do that eight weeks ago. So there was a lot of advising on that. I helped create a biweekly meeting for retailers as well that's still going on. That's been really fun. It's a group of about 30 large retailers, mostly in the U.S., who, uh, have started to talk about so much more, but that's one of them. That's, you know, talking about fraud and and COVID and all the things that have come up, but so many other things. The biggest impact to retail by far is this new fraud that I have been trying to preach about in multiple different ways. Uh, We did have an episode on the Frogcast about this, at least one, towards the end, as well as I've written articles, I've done LinkedIn postings, I will be doing a webinar on Wednesday of this week when this comes out. So chances are you will need to look for the recording on CMP's website or cardnotpresent.com's website. But doing a webinar on this as well with someone who is just the, the yin to my yang, to be completely honest on this topic, but I'm calling it refunding fraud. And here's why, because that's what the fraudsters are calling it. Well, they're calling it refunding. Of course, they're not going to call it fraud, but that's what it is. And it is, if you're a retailer online, especially in the US, but I've heard reports this is happening in the UK as well, and probably Europe as well. There are probably ads on dark web forums, as well as private communities in private chat groups that are about you. And that's, it, it's terrifying. I've unfortunately had to tell several very large companies that they're one of them and they just had no clue because there aren't chargebacks at the end. So that's always how we've measured fraud until then. But you add, you know, a, a really bad economic crisis, especially in the U.S. on top of a worldwide pandemic, on top of uncertainty and fear and people, you know, suddenly losing their, you know, the finances that were able to give them either just the basic needs or other things that they wanted. And, you know, in 2008, we saw the introduction of what we traditionally call friendly fraud, which is uh, when someone uses their own credit card in a transaction. Maybe that means that they call and say that they didn't receive it, but they, well, they call and issue a chargeback and say that they didn't receive it. Or, they issue a chargeback because they claim that their credit card was stolen when you can prove that they use their own card. Or maybe they call and say it was different than described on the website, so they have their bank issue a chargeback. Those are all things that the fraud department would have visibility into and would be able to recalibrate either in their rules or be able to change policies or processes. Chargebacks provide a feedback loop. And I hope every merchant listening to this is using them as such. That will be another rant 
for another day. Uh, but basically the refunder, I'm just trying to think of like how to explain this in the easiest way. So it really started with retailers coming to me, several of them within a, the span of a couple weeks saying, hey, we're receiving a lot of calls of people claiming that they're not receiving items. We know that some of that's because the carriers aren't doing signature upon delivery anymore because of social distancing and because warehouses are social distancing, so that's taking longer. Some entire shipping trucks or pallets or containers have just kind of gone missing or were set to the side. So there's a lot of things that can happen very legitimately where people can't get their packages, but they were feeling like this was abnormally high. Then I learned, honestly, the next day after the very first meeting about it, I learned that about these cultures and, and forums and communities in uh, various places online that are providing refunding. So essentially, uh, the very basics, if I am a consumer and I really want a high dollar electronics item, but I don't want to, I can't, or I don't want to pay full price or even, you know, 10% off. I want a really good deal. I can place the order on my credit card and wait for it to come. As soon as it comes, I can send the order details to what's called a refunder. That refunder has various companies that they advertise what they can, you know, who they can provide, they guarantee refunds on who they, which is kind of funny because they actually don't give the person's money back. So, I mean, it's not really a money back guarantee. It's just a guarantee, but they feel very confident that they know the company's policies and systems and rules on the internal as well as external well enough that they can get you your money back in some way. There are about five different ways that they are things that they claim. The most common is did not uh, receive, but they know that that's becoming something that companies are getting more and more skeptical of. So they may claim that they ordered two items and only one came, or they may claim that they got an empty box, or they may try to return it, but with dry ice in it that has the exact same weight as the item you received. But by the time the warehouse gets it, there's nothing in the box and you've already called and said, Hey, my box arrived at the warehouse. Why haven't I gotten you know my money back? So customers care is like, absolutely. I'll give you your money back. So I would provide my uh, order details to that refunder. A lot of times you're also providing them the password to that website, which is facepalm because how many consumers use the same password for multiple accounts? 83% of them. And at least that was the most recent figure, I believe. And so they'll go and then they initiate a refund. They get, as soon as the money hits my account, then I give them, they get that email saying, yeah, you've been refunded. So they come to me and say, okay, I now need, it's between seven and 20% of order volume for refunding. So you are getting an 80 to 93% discount on name brand clothing, on electronics, on cosmetics, on outdoor gear, everything you can think of. Honestly, it's, it's, mind boggling. And this was starting to be a problem in March and it's been happening for a while. It actually started at Amazon several years ago. And once they got it under control, everyone else uh, started dealing with it, which is reason number 576,000 why I'm so into collaboration for merchants, because 
you know, had they shared that information and I understand why they didn't, but had they shared that information with more merchants, maybe they could, you know, those merchants could have started to prepare. Uh, but I do know that Brett shared that on the online broadcast last year. So, you know, it's not like you weren't warned, but just like with anything else, we think, oh, well, you know, we'll cross that bridge. If I come to it, got a hundred other things to deal with and fires to put out. Well, because fraud doesn't have insight into this issue, I think a lot of things are going through the cracks. A lot of customer service has the, you know, their whole mission is to serve the customer. So they don't want to have that awkward conversation. But also if there aren't a lot of policies in place, they're just going to default to a refund. And the end result is that you are out the product and the money. Now you might not have fees for chargebacks, but still that is something that you just can't afford for. Uh, especially right now with sales being down. I met someone pretty awesome. That sounded funny. I'm married. I'm very happily married and so were they. But I met this guy who I'm going to have on a, a podcast very soon who I've brought in on a couple of projects already and he'll be doing the webinar with me where he has basically embedded himself in these groups for the last two years. He has multiple aliases. He knows them backwards and forwards. If you ask him to name a merchant, he will tell you exactly what thresholds they have for returning. Like maybe they require a police report over $500. He'll know that. Maybe they, you know, require you to fill out an affidavit. He'll know that. Maybe they're super easy and you can get a refund up to $2,000 without even a supervisor approving it, you know, w- without even like confirming that the items were in the box when they arrived at the warehouse because they weren't. And so there's a lot of things that he knows that was just the other piece of the puzzle. And we've really been able to come together and educate clients and, and as well as merchants, just, you know, in general, that about this. And we're starting to kind of speak the gospel as I'm saying, but uh, there will be so much more information on this in an upcoming episode. But I just, that's one of the biggest parts of fraud that has really exploded with coronavirus. And I think it's just going to get worse. I'm really concerned about the holiday season with new gaming consoles coming out, a new iPhone, new games for those gaming consoles, as well as the holidays in general, Hanukkah and Christmas and everything else that comes up during that time. I'm concerned that people are going to be in a worse financial state, especially in the U.S., and that they will go this route. And a lot of the advertisements for these are in public places. You know, they're advertising in social media sites, they're advertising in threads, you know, on on online forums that everyday people, you know, access. Maybe they're the kind of people that kind of are always looking for a deal or, you know, play the coupon game or stack promo codes. They're opportunists, but it's still it's still fraud. And I have heard that the FBI does classify it as fraud, but we know that they are super overwhelmed and understaffed as well. So, and they have a lot on their plate when you're, you know, one of your jobs is domestic terrorism. It's kind of a challenge to also prioritize cybercrime in a similar way. So it's really up to us fraud fighters for online to be vigilant about this. And and there are several things that you can do to prevent it. One is more policy driven and techniques where you're learning about what they're doing and how they are actually attacking your company and which uh, doors and windows, so to speak, they're getting through and what they're taking advantage of, as well as processes and policies that you can create. Like I said earlier, I love to do that. Say, okay, if you put in this process, then this is the effect. Uh, I can really see 
down the line almost exactly what can happen. I actually once had a client tell, call me a fraud psychic because I warned them if they implemented a technology that someone in their company was suggesting that their approval rates would go down. And they did it anyways to appease the executive in their company, which that's fine. They turned off that that feature in three weeks because it killed their authorizations and was a conversion killer. Go figure. I'm not a psychic. I've just been doing this for a really long time. And I've done way more than the 10,000 hours that Malcolm Gladwell suggests to be an expert on anything. So that's really, you know, why. So doing the cause and effect, that's one way. Also, I am working with a startup that is tackling payment fraud in a really unique way that I'm super excited about and that a lot of very large, you know, some of the largest companies in the world are working with right now to also integrate refunding into this. And I'm really excited. I think they really are one of the only technologies that's going to be able to help merchants on this in a, in a secure way. So in a data security way, so that there's not a lot of data share, but they are able to help. I'm going to try to be cryptic on this because it is a public forum. Certainly don't want to give any refunders any of the secret sauce away, so to speak, in quotation marks, even though there you know, are patents on this and, and will be very soon for the refunding part. It's more just trying to do it on that. But if you are drowning in refunds and really wondering if it's something that's impacting you, please you know, feel free to contact me. I might Take a couple days to get back, but I've been really trying hard to stay on top of correspondence. I've been trying to respond to people on LinkedIn through talk to text while I walk my dog every night. So if you get one back for me and it looks kind of lengthy and it doesn't make total sense grammatically, that's why I'm trying to, you know, get through those because I, it's my favorite part about, you know, working with the industry is, is talking with you guys. I just have to prioritize paying clients as well. So that can be a challenge, which I love my paying clients. Don't get me wrong. I'm certainly not saying that it's a bad thing. It's just, that's one way to prioritize it is, you know, I need how, which one takes care of my family. Okay. So anyway, that's, that's just two of the uh, kind of fraud that we've seen pop up. There's, you know, and obviously like the behavior on ML and AI have definitely been interesting with all of this, but that's not really like a trend or anything. Obviously, a lot of social engineering, states and federal government agencies that are providing assistance to people in the U.S. have definitely been scammed with identity fraud. And in a way, a lot of the people who were doing carding online went over to the states. So that's actually made it so easy for me to be able to know how to stop them because they're the same MO. It's just unfortunately they don't have any of the layers of tools yeah, I mean, I shouldn't say they don't have any. They have several now, and I know a lot of the states do as well. But prior, you know, when everything happened, there really weren't a lot of tools or strategic policies or processes in place. Their definition of fraud was someone who was working, you know, under the table, so to speak, tax-free, and also filing for unemployment. That was what fraud was to them. Unfortunately, they now all have a very different uh, definition of fraud, similar to what we do. So I think that that's, you know, that's pretty much it for this episode. I really tried to cram as much as I could in. There are so many more things to discuss. So, you know, that's going to be part of the fun of this journey is me getting the hang of doing this by myself and you, you know, learning more. And certainly I hope that there's a feedback loop as well. That's it for this episode of Fraudology Podcast. I hope you learned a lot. 
We have so many more topics to discuss and discover. So I hope you'll subscribe to Fraudology on your favorite podcast platform to be alerted when a new episode is released. And while you're on your favorite podcast platform, please rate and review this podcast. Since it's new, that'll help others find it easier. And please tell your friends and colleagues to check it out too. If you have a question or just want to say hi, you can find me most on LinkedIn or email info at chargelytics, C-H-A-R-G-E-L-Y-T-I-C-S consulting.com. I look forward to diving into more fraudology with you next time. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.